0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. The mining industry faces profound disruptors and pressures to change as a result of digitization, but primarily energy transition. This is going to create a paradigm shift in the sector, going from how the organizations structure themselves. To also the people within them. Discussing the enormous challenges and opportunities facing the mining sector is Roland Reichsteiner. Roland is a partner of Oliver Wyman and sits over their oil and gas mining and chemicals practice. As always, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Roland, it's a pleasure to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, the title of this episode is Paradigm Change in Mining and the Future of Commodities. And I think initially when we talk about energy transition and other pressures to change, it might not seem like it's all that tremendous, the change these organizations are facing. But actually when you step back and you, I've done preparation and, and your guidance, this is an enormous subject with enormous ramifications for all those participants in the metals and minerals supply chain. Can you just frame up for us to start off with what are the key pressures to change for organizations, for miners, for those participants in the minerals and mining supply chain? Yes, thank you, Paul. I think there's right now quite a lot of disruptors
1: in the mining sector. You think about the supply chain resilience requirements, think about the geopolitical issues and the locations of value chains post-COVID. Or you think about all the technology developments and the required R&D activities that have to be rebuilt by a lot of the mining companies, given that they were deprioritized for a long time. And then you've got, of course, a lot of kind of changes in the business models as well, driven by end customer demand and driven by the needs of being actually closer to the end customer. But I think the two key drivers right now for change is one, as you said, is basically all the change that comes through decarbonization and ESG requirements on the one side. And on the other side, what we call customer first, which is in the end the end customer of the product, requiring increasing control of what he or she is buying. And these two elements are really driving a lot of the change.
0: Okay. So and as we talk, it already reminds me of the episodes we did last year talking about what's going on in the, the with the oil producers. There's a, an analogous story there. Okay, so let's take the first one first. So energy transition, what are the pressures that that is driving? What are the disruptors that that brings?
1: So a lot is obviously related to all the scope 1, 2, 3 requirements and the net zero pledges that uh, a lot of the organizations actually do, but that not only has impact on their own activities of the production and the uh, portfolio of um, assets as well as commodities. But it also has a significant impact on the supplier management side. So how do you decarbonize your suppliers as well? In addition to this, um, obviously circular economy opportunities have a major focus. Think about battery recycling, where you see today already that recycled copper or lithium get actually premium over virgin product, which will actually drive significantly the change in terms of how you think about your overall asset portfolio, in terms of mining virgin product versus thinking about
0: participating in the circular economy. I think that's important because it's all-encompassing, right? This is not only the carbon used to transport your iron ore, but also the transition to electric furnaces, which we'll come on to, where does that power come from? All all aspects, right, are are impacted by this. The second big impact of energy transition, as, as you've got here in our notes, is new asset classes. If you are building for scope one and two, focus your building, Green energy
1: facilities, close to your minds, why are you not building those large enough to actually supply not only the product itself, but also on top of this, for instance, the green energy? And I think these are just one a few examples of um, green energy or basically new asset classes. Then thinking about battery metals. obviously there's new metals in increasing demand, and again, it's even more about the recycled opportunity here than just the virgin product. And that in itself, you could argue is a asset class on its own because it has completely different technologies you need to apply, different value chains you need to play with, et cetera. And then ultimately, you mentioned new technologies on the steel side, electric furnaces, but also in um, other areas. Those require obviously um, additional asset classes and I think There, we then come actually very closely to the point that the question is about who is actually the customer you're serving or who is the customer you need to be
0: close to? Do you need to get actually further down in the value chain? This is your customer first. Can you explain that? Because I think this is a a trend, a disruptor that is driving all across the suite of commodity producers, whether that's ags or metals or, or indeed energy. Yeah, absolutely.
1: If you think back originally, the value was in the asset. The value was around, you've got the mine in the mining sector or in other commodities, you've got access to the original product. Sometimes you would process it, but you would sell that product to the, um, to the next processing step. What's happening now is that for multiple reasons, A, the energy transition, therefore a different demand pattern, B, the, um, the whole discussion around the recycling importance, But see, and this is really the most important uh, point is around this end customer demanding information around what she or he is buying. And here, I think you see that already today, for instance, in food, where there's very clear transparency around what are the ingredients of a product and the same we will see rather sooner than later actually happening on pretty much everything you're buying as an end customer. If you're buying a car, if you're buying a house, if you're buying an iPhone or any other device, you would want to be interested, not only around the carbon intensity, but the overall ESG footprint of the product.
0: Which is not only a challenge, but also opens up huge opportunities for those organizations that are willing to build a downstream capability of their their asset to capture those uh, customers. So before we kind of go into the situation of mining today and and where the successful strategies and responses might be that you're, you're already seeing, you're in the boardroom of global miners. How urgent, how important, how live are these discussions right now in the boardrooms of some of the world's largest mining companies?
1: And Paul, this is really the interesting development today it is omnipresent. It's topic number one, the whole question around decarbonisation, because it actually has an impact across everybody who works in a mining organisation, or even who lends to a mining organisation, or has a stake in a mining organisation. Two years ago, this actually transition was not the biggest topic in the boardrooms. Today, as I said, it's omnipresent. So why? is? Because it has a significant impact Across all the decision making, it starts with like, what are the expectations of your shareholders in terms of what type of organization, what type of ESG footprint are they willing to accept? Same goes for the lenders. Where will you actually get your financing from if you are not as ESG compliant as required? And we know from, from all the development rights now, there's a significant oversupply of funds for ESG compliant businesses and there's an increasing shortage of funds for non-ESg compliant uh, businesses hence very clear that transition is required in order to keep, to keep financing strong and to keep uh, capital costs low hence it's the number one board topic but even then if you go further down it's a topic across the board it doesn't only apply for uh, it doesn't only impact financing it impacts capital allocation in terms of what type of projects you're investing, whether you invest more for the long term, for the short term, larger, smaller projects, it depends. Project execution, extremely important. And it moves on into production optimization and ultimately also the asset specific customer relationships. And what is it what you actually deliver to your end customer back to the conversation we just had before? And that obviously requires a different set of understanding of what the end customer wants. What the, org- what the ecosystem
0: actually can produce and where you position yourself. Just looking at your notes and from our discussion, you, you argue strongly that this requires a deep cultural change across the entire organization. Could you just pick out one or two examples of just the, the mindset change that is going to be needed at different levels?
1: Sure. If you think about the investments or the capital allocation we um, mentioned earlier, I think the One of the big changes will be that it might not be in the future only about investing into very large and cost efficient mines, but it might actually be that smaller mines that might not be as cost efficient, but more ESG efficient, might actually become way more important and more interesting in a merit order perspective as one example. Another example is that when you think about in the past, it was all about what are the assets I own, what is the production I can have. Maybe going forward, you know, you might be applying more of a pharma like business model where you might be also acquiring innovation, where you might be acquiring smaller mines that actually produce certain very ESG relevant products. And ultimately, again, the circular economy, the whole topic of recycling is actually it's not new, but it is actually very complex and that is why A lot of the larger mining companies have not been very focused on that over the past. And that's driven by the fact that you've got very, very complex value chains. You deal with different customers. You deal with different technologies. You have to work around a lot of uh, contaminated products. Um, And that in itself is obviously a much more fragmented business than what these organizations are used to. You know, it reminds me a lot of like 15 years ago in the utility sector across Europe, where the discussion was always around whether you build another gigawatt nuke facility. And then suddenly all these, at that time, still smaller wind parks came up, which obviously were disrupting completely the business model. But today we know that actually with the combination of multiple of those, you can actually produce similar amounts of power but only um, obviously with a much better ecological footprint. And I think that kind of change of business model, that is in front of the mining sector right
0: now. Yeah. And having just done an episode where we stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest about nuclear, I think it is a relevant analogy that 15 years ago, utilities were dominated by a small number of enormous organizations with incredible balance sheets. Fast forward to today, those organizations have shrunk considerably and are under under threat and probably no longer in a situation where they could at least privately owned ones produce a gigawatt nuclear power generation plant right so there is these impacts are we are talking in a time frame of 10 years this isn't where mining will be in 20 30 years it will already have wrought its changes by then could you just very quickly for those outside of the the mining industry including myself of course what is the typical setup today of these organizations in terms of, particularly, how they market their products?
1: So today, most of the mining organizations are still very much production-focused organizations. That is, of course, clearly driven by the massive investments that are required into building new mines. And therefore, the focus has been, and still is in a lot of organizations, around producing as much as possible and having very clean and fast value chains um, in order to deliver that product into the market. Some of the most sophisticated market mining organizations have actually built quite good commercial marketing organizations that do not only focus on marketing, but also on trading, which means specifically around structuring new products, structuring new services to customers and therefore actually increasingly having an impact on the production profile from a market perspective, and that is basically what we've seen happening in oil over the last 10 years, 15 years, what's happening now very much um, in the mining sector as well, but that is not currently um, the status quo yet. Um, you, do, you do have, as I said, main, mainly this push principle, and I think the biggest difference is that as you have these large mines that have to actually operate over a very long lifespan to be profitable and to pay back on the investments, you do have a very different block speed for decision making um, and any type of reactions to market behaviors than what the energy transition that's purely driven by new technologies, which are extremely fastly developing. And these different block speeds are really pushing a lot of pressure right now on the mining sector. And this is specifically, you mentioned it earlier, it's around the cultural challenges that come with this, which means you need to accept that the way how you took decisions in the past, maybe the KPIs you used in the past might not be the ones that you're actually using going forward. And you might have to actually not only change the way how you do things, but also how you assess them and what is actually more important in the end. Um, will actually also change as you go through that process, away from production more to being able to supply the market with what the market needs.
0: And what actually, you know, at the moment, a lot of these products are sold just to intermediaries or or semi finished. Can you just describe the supply chain nature at the moment, typically? Sure. In general, you
1: have for most of the products, you basically, whether it's in iron ore, whether this is in coal, basically you deliver either the raw product or a, a certain slightly processed product according to um, spec requirements. In value chains like um, bauxite, alumina, you have more today already um, finished goods around aluminum, but you will see um, increasingly right now that the organizations are looking into how they can actually forward integrate to a certain extent. Because obviously that will give you the opportunity to also drive more of the value chain development as well as access to um, customer needs.
0: Yeah. And it's a pretty limited suite of metals, right? For the most part, the battery metals world sits outside of what we would consider the the large miners, the sort of the, the household names, and is in quite a fragmented supply chain owned predominantly in Asia. But it is it is quite, at the moment at least, limited to iron ore, bauxite, coal, et cetera.
1: For the large miners, it has been. But you see right now, I mean, you can read every week, you can read about new developments around- Lithium, yeah. Exactly, around new opportunities. So I think, I think that is an area which is very clear and high on the agenda right now. The, the thinking around what has to be the pro- product portfolio, I think that's- That's a really a core capability, um, of the mining companies. I think what's now, what's now has to come more is actually a better understanding of future and customer requirements, as well as of getting closer into, um, partnerships with the direct, um, off takers of the product.
0: Yeah, because again, typically, particularly the battery metals and the other critical metals for energy transition and a digitized life in general, these are much smaller volumes, very different setups, and it comes back to that kind of paradigm change in in the culture of these organizations to be able to look at those assets, which are on a vastly different scale and, and see the opportunity and be comfortable with, with bringing those on board. So I think you set up both the immediacy And also, just the number of disruptors that are facing this sector, and talked about sort of the underlying cultural changes that will be needed. And we've alluded to some of the potential strategies that these organizations can take. I want to move forward now to to think about, talk about successful responses to this. You know, when you're there advising your clients, what are some of the things that you're highlighting that they need to be thinking about today and and, and get on with?
1: So, I think there's, probably three levels to think about, and that is obviously besides the core operations and the core portfolio management on the assets, which is, I think, first of all, this need to get closer to the customer. So basically, a consumer back to mining view has to be established. Secondly, it's about the absolute need is to be able to trade and risk manage opportunities. This is the key in order to be successful in this more complex environment going forward. And the third part is that there's a lot of tools available, how you can actually implement this and how you can actually improve the overall value chain positioning. So if we if we start with number one, so the need to get close to customers, we spoke a lot about that. It is about understanding what the end customer wants, and it's about understanding what the direct off-taker needs and to provide solutions. So it's about, as I said before, about ESG compliance might actually be more important than just cost, and it might drive your merit order around how you produce. And that is something which we see happening step by step. But still, because these organizations are predominantly production organizations, The marketing arms of these organizations, with few exceptions, are not getting the voice at the table that is actually required to make the whole organization understand of the massive change that's actually happening on the end customer side in terms of their demands.
0: Yeah. I would like you, if possible, to give kind of a concrete example of the nature of these discussions with clients, because also not only are perhaps those voices not at the right level within the the mining organization, it's a very different skill set being a customer solution orientated consultative sales technical sales to really get inside the customer which the easiest example i see is when you see what the ag houses are building with respect to their customers the crafts and the Nestle's, of you know where they have a real understanding of the needs of those organizations and are bringing technological solutions and partnerships and other things to provide that but they've got these really powerful Technical sales teams in their customers. Can you just give us a, you know, what, what would that look like in mining? And you know, what are your comments on sort of the talent side there? Paul, well, it's a great
1: example you're making when you're comparing to the ag sector, which in that area certainly is much more um, advanced already. And uh, some of the ag players, you know, they actually went all that way downstream in some of the air product areas where they feel they can be competitive. And I'm sure we will see similar things happening in the mining sector, because today, a lot of the mining companies in their marketing departments are still having difficulties to offer structured opportunities or different structures to customers. And this is not that they would not be necessarily be able to structure those. But if you think about the massive sales force that you have, that sales force doesn't have a trading or structuring background often. It's more like a a marketing background or a technical background. So it is very much out of their comfort zone to have conversations with buyers around telling them that it might be better for both of us if the structure of the contract looks different or that they might be actually be able to, to save on cost if they entered into different structures. In addition to this, when you then look at the buyers, the ones that negotiate often, it's either the technical people, the technical people, they negotiate, they actually just want to make sure nothing breaks down in the process. So they are not too cost sensitive or not too open for structures that might put them at risk. And then you've got the procurement departments that are very much focused on, on cost in itself. And that normally doesn't necessarily lead to structures that will offer better win-win situation for both sides when it comes to inventory management, when it comes to to specs, etc. And then on um, that basically drives the marketing people to stay in their comfort zone and trying to avoid to getting too much into debate with customers, which starts with the technical marketing side, but then get, gets very quickly into the pricing and structuring side. And here we're seeing First movers that actually have great successes by employing these capabilities and applying these type of structures in the market and winning through that. But in a, di- but that's still a long way to go because it's not only about adding one or two people. It's really about making everybody comfortable with the new regime and explaining and helping people to actually move out of their comfort zone. And that's a
0: significant change when it comes to the capability and the talent that's required. And can you wrap that up for us in the sense of what would these types of structures look like? Is this where a miner is rolling up, providing power to a potential customer? Or can you open our minds as to what these structures might be other than just, you know, a bit of flexibility in pricing and volumes and locations?
1: It might well be that if you have a customer who's buying energy from you today and you're delivering coal to them, instead of thinking, instead of thinking You don't want to supply coal anymore because of ESG environments. Let's approach it from a perspective about what is the energy that this customer actually needs, therefore, how what transition process they will go through. Hence, how can you actually deliver different forms of energy to that customer instead of coal? And those are the elements, how thinking about the customer, instead of thinking about the product that you have. And we're seeing that happening increasingly in the
0: market you've got your first point there which is that need to get closer to the customer of course beyond just changing the, the you know or, or enhancing the nature of your sales teams that also then triggers your second point which is you do need to have if you're going to start providing these uh, more complex structures you need to ha- build that trading and risk management optimization organisation to be able to deliver that and also I guess, get the intelligence from the market about where price directions, customer money, all those good things. So those two things are intimately linked. Can you talk about how organizations, and we already know that they are doing this, you've alluded to that, but building out these true marketing and trading arms. So it is not
1: necessarily thinking about what is the additional dollar I can create through building a trading capability. But what it is all about is about building an HL team There's actually continuously in the market around price discovery, around understanding what customers do, what competitors do, and therefore build the capability that is helping to improve not only what the marketing department does, but for sure. But then on top of this also, what's actually happening on the whole asset operations and ultimately on the asset portfolio. Because in the long run, there's no need necessarily to produce everything you're selling on your own. There's third party volumes you could combine in your office. And then if you structure it right, uh, you will keep your customers, even if they change products, or you will win new customers. And that capability comes through that kind of mindset. And as you bring that mindset into your marketing departments, these departments will step by step learn and understand and bring together the Understanding of the value chains, the understanding of the customers, the understanding of the products, plus the pricing and structure capabilities, and that is the cultural change you need to actually start sooner than later.
0: Yeah, there's two challenges there, right? Having, I guess, we've been intimately involved in this transition as well for for one or two miners. One is a hard, cold fact: there aren't many individuals with these skill sets and now we're at a time when these skill sets are in high demand for across the industry right if you're looking to bring in people who have an understanding of some of these new products the energy products that could be of value or needed to complete this picture for a miner to tackle this paradigm change those individuals are also in high demand they are scarce and they're also in high demand from the energy industry itself which is also facing similar challenges right that is what it is right and organizations need to be able to come up with strategies to ensure that they are able to attract talent by having clear missions clear cultural values clear opportunities obviously the second part of that is having clear you know is, is compensation we don't need to dig into it here but that is also a big cultural change when you're building a trading organization understanding how to compete for that talent which is fundamentally paid very differently to a an equity sales business
1: yes and the interesting thing, Paul, from my perspective is I completely agree. There's very little talent out there that's available because of the whole decarbonization agenda across all assets. However, I think there's still a big opportunity also for the mining organizations to create an environment that helps new talent to succeed. Because what you, what you have is you, you got, you know, let's face it, even when you get beyond the point, That you want to build it, you get beyond the point that you want to hire, that you want to build, that you want to build compensation structures, incentive structures that make sense. When these individuals come on board for good reason, there's actually quite a resistance to integrate them from the existing organization in the beginning, which is driven by the fact, obviously, that ultimately there's good angst that something's happening, which people might not fully embrace. And there's change, which always drives complexity for people. Hence, what's important here is to, from the beginning, create an environment where everybody is winning through that change, both the ones that come in, but also the ones which are there, that there's an incentive structure, but there's also clear communication. There's a clear understanding why you're doing it. Because over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen many attempts from small and large mining houses to build these capabilities, but only few succeeded. And the ones that succeeded, succeeded not necessarily because they had better incentive systems or clearer strategies, but they succeeded because they were able to blend in the new capabilities with the old capabilities. And that was ultimately successful. Because what you want to avoid, you want to avoid somebody coming in and either exploiting the system or creating funny money. What you want to achieve is you want to have somebody coming in and help to optimize the overall system from the structuring at the end custom all the way down to the operations plan in order to, through that, actually create more value for the organization. And you've seen that a lot happening across oil and gas companies over the last 10 years and even today as we speak. But that is actually, I think, the key to success. And that ultimately also means you might not necessarily need the top 2% of traders and you don't need the top 2% of crop traders for sure. What you need is actually people that understand optimization of complex value chains that are sensitive to the complexity of different cultures and for cultural change. And then you want to enable them through strong top management backing to run this process in an organization to help the cultural change in the organization. That is how you create most of the value. If you look at what you can create from But trading uplift, you can normally create 80% of the trading uplift you create actually through very clean and proper system optimization and the remaining 20% come on through prop trading or very sophisticated trading structures.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I couldn't agree more on what is the goal of the organization and finding the talent that understands that goal and has all been in, in different settings has achieved similar, right? Yeah, you don't. You know, the last thing you want is a, a hedge fund prop trader coming in to, to manage your this kind of transition. I just think the challenge is that those individuals are even scarcer prop traders right and uh, to find all individuals who have worked in large organizations who can navigate them and are able to deal with that level of complexity and continue focused on a particular mission is a is a real challenge but that aside that's just me putting my my recruitment hat on got triggered <laughs>
1: well you know i think it's a really important point it's a really important point yes there's only few there but then also when you find them and they are out there and you find them there is always then the important piece on top is that you give this process time because if you expect them to deliver, to prove themselves and deliver profit in the first 6 to 12 months, they will focus on the low hanging fruits which they can influence themselves. But if you give them a 24, 36 months horizon to build capability, to integrate between production, marketing, trading the different capabilities and improve the processes take the people alongside then you you might have to invest for two three years but then you get a much higher benefit later on and you get actually exactly that cultural change and that ability for a much broader set of people across the organization to deal with end customer demand change or any type of happenings in the whole value chain that might be of interest to think through how you can actually adapt your product suite.
0: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And we've worked together on on this particular type of placement, right? Where there has been that runway provided. I think one of the challenges is commodities is also such a dynamic industry. I think about sort of my experiences on the ag side, especially with shareholders and so forth, you can find goals changing quite quickly as well in such an environment. But right. So the final one of those three linked, but key things organizations need to tackle. So you've got obviously get close to the customer, then build the capability to be able to do that and offer these new services and risk management. The final one is you talk about there's lots of other tools available that maybe the mining industry hasn't historically leaned on. You know, I'm thinking about, This is just looking at your notes, right? So you've got investments, tech bets, what do their R&D department now look like, the partnerships and so forth, to achieve these goals. Can you talk a little bit about that, and then we can move on to your predictions for what mining might look like in a decade?
1: So I think the most important one here is partnerships with your off-takers, with your customers, and that obviously starts with you being able to differentiate yourselves from your competitors, which comes increasingly through technology, not only through the product you're producing, but proprietary technology that you're able to supply to your customers. And you can see already now some of the more sophisticated mining companies are starting to invest again a lot into setting up R&D organizations or buying um, pharma-like innovation and technology from third parties and keep them as proprietary technologies that they then develop together with the customers but that's not enough having the technology i think going forward we will have to increasingly also co-invest with customers that might mean that in order to be able to supply technology and supply product you might actually also build jointly some interim facility for faci- uh, interim production or processing facilities in order to be able to help your customer fund all the investment required to go through this transition and be first in the market. And I think that will be the type of models we will be seeing increasingly going forward, specifically as we see different type of intermediate products being required through technology change as we have it in aluminum, as we have it in iron, as we have it then obviously even more when it comes to the whole
0: recycling value chains. Which again, building also that, that human capability, right? The, what does you know, your corporate development teams look like? Do you have a, an incubator business, you know, all team, et cetera, to actually be able to provide this optionality to, to the C-suite of these miners?
1: Yeah, and it's much closer than from a thinking process like a PGM business than a vault business, where you think a lot about what is the end customer demand, like the automotive OEMs and what they are doing. And therefore, I think there's a lot we can learn actually from that sector. You think about palladium, platinum for the OEMs. You think about what might that be in other value change, and then start thinking about what are the capabilities you need to build around those, which are predominantly capabilities that fully understand the end customer demand and the technology development at the end customer. And then hence, you develop your own proprietary technologies around how you can supply virgin as well as recycle products
0: um, to these customers. So before we look at the future, I just want to put my, my MBA hat on, if I may. Is there not an alternative strategy here? Is there not the ability for a miner to say, well, we can't compete in this. We don't have the necessary capital structure, funding, whatever it might be. And our strategy is just going to be low cost. We're going to stick with coal. We haven't hit peak coal demand yet. And or there's always going to be buyers for the cheapest product out there that might not meet these Scope one, two, three goals. Is that a viable alternative for these organizations?
1: It is a good question, and I think it depends very much on your shareholder or wider stakeholder requirements, as well as on your timeline you're looking at. I think if you're thinking about short-term optimization and short-term gain, And we see this in coal, we see this in parts of the oil value chain. Then, of course, you can go for low cost. You can go for assets which are less favorable in demand right now. And you can you might pick them up cheap and you can actually build quite a nice business for a short period of time. But it will have a significant impact on your financing capability. And that will actually go pretty quick. In addition to this, if you think about all the regulation that's coming up across uh, the globe, um, you know, think about CBAM in Europe and others, it will increasingly impact how you actually manage your business globally. Hence, I think if you are a large organization or if you are a organization with shareholders that do have a certain ESG demands and requirements and i guess we'll see this across the board quite a lot and on top of this if you are if you have lending requirements then i think increasingly you you should actually avoid a strategy where you just go on lowest cost and um, do not look at esg because it will definitely push you out of business sooner or later but increasingly what's important is that you do understand the short term changes, and I mentioned earlier, this clock speed difference that we have today in the markets than than what we would have had 10 years ago around the innovation that's happening um, through technology in in the whole metals value chains. And here, I think if you don't have your hand on the pulse very closely to understand what's happening at the end customers, you might actually be late with any changes in your product
0: portfolio to actually really grab the pre in the market. And this is a narrative of the moment it's a choice. In the future, it might be your license to operate, right? Exactly. Exactly.
1: And and, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, there are business models right now where you can run this quite successfully. We see this in oil, we see this in metals and um, by no means, as long as demand is there, that's a viable way of operating from a commercial perspective. But you also have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of the organization? What is it actually? What your stakeholders? And here specifically, I to talent. What are they expecting from the firm they are working for? And um, if you're in the short-term run, as I mentioned earlier, then it's absolutely feasible. But if you're thinking about a long-term building of an organization, it will be increasingly difficult to attract talent if you are not considering being a ESG-friendly organization for good reason, because that is what. Specifically, uh, and luckily, the younger generation increasingly demands.
0: So that also increases the proximity to the end point as well. If you aren't able to compete for top talent, or that talent doesn't have the same potentially, dare I say, moral compass that uh, your your competitors have, you can quickly find yourself in a situation of being on the wrong side of increasing regulation, increasing transparency in the industry as well. Completely agree. So just in the couple minutes left, I think we've charted some of the the future of miners might look like those that, you know, have the ability to win with the change that's, that's facing them. What do you think are the characteristics of those organizations that will be thriving in 10 years? And what are some of the, I think the, the surprising changes that we might see in a decade? You know, I think about locations and all these, this, that side of things. Can you just hit on those two points for us?
1: So my perspective is that for sure the characteristics of winners is to avoid to be substituted as a business model, which basically means that you need to adapt to all these changes that we just discussed. Because whilst they might be optional today, they will not be optional in five to 10 years. And the development will go much, much faster than what we've seen in the past. We've seen this already in the energy transition in the power sector. Um, now in the oil sector, it's going to hit the mining sector as quickly or even quicker. So I think what you need is you need to be very agile and have a very strong focus on end customer and customer innovation cycles and therefore be able to have a technology development capability, either in-house or as an acquisition capability. In addition to this, I think organizations will have to move away of just thinking in large-scale mining because you will have to be able to um, also develop much smaller ones maybe in partnerships in a way that you um, that you focus on the ESG merit order in some cases much more than the than the pure cost focus and again today we don't see a lot of premium for for um, ESG compliant product um, or green product as opposed to brown product. However, um, in scrap, it already starts, or in recycled product, it's already started, whether this is in copper, whether it's in lithium. And we will see this happening sooner or later, as soon as there's proper price discovery mechanisms out there, we will see that in steel as well as in aluminum as well. And in order to do this, I think there's a few things these organizations will show in the future. They will be much closer to the end customer by actually being the co-invested or co-developing technologies and also building products, they will have very strong trading and structuring capabilities, not only to be able to offer the right structures to the customers, but actually to own the customer instead of own the product flow in order to deliver what the customer needs. And it will also ultimately mean that you will be able to manage different different uh, geological market structures because the more green energy is required the more, for production, probably more production will happen where green energy is being produced cheaply, which brings, for instance, Africa and the Middle East much more into the focus again. And then the last and um, biggest impact, I think, is again as we mentioned before, is the cultural change and the cultural that challenge. I think. The the organizations that will be successful in the future will have started to approach this cultural change already now, and not only offer opportunities for new talent to attract new talent, but offer specifically opportunities for the existing talent to go through this transition and come out of that transition as winners. And that requires a lot of effort on behalf of the organizations and a lot of investment into existing as well as new capabilities.
0: Well said. Uh, Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your time and the insight on this. I think it is kind of a lot of these stories you can think about, well, it's energy transition impact on X, and it can seem quite simple. But I think what you've really highlighted is how the magnitude of change that it will drive in mining, but also across the other commodity asset classes as well, is, is just foundational and will have a dramatic impact on organizations over the next decade, uh, most of that story is ultimately about talent and highlighting there how organizations can support talent they have right now or how to attract talent to help them achieve this. But I think it's you know it's, it, it struck me before we start and it strikes me at the end of it even more so just the enormity of the change organizations face and it's uh, going to be a real challenge.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, but I think it's actually not only a challenge, it's actually a great opportunity as well. Because through all that change we were discussing, there's a lot of opportunity coming up. And I think the ones that really embrace it right now and are willing to invest into that change will come out clearly as the winners much sooner
0: than probably expect. Well, thanks, Ronan for, for your time and look forward to having you on again in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Paul.
0: All the best to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you